Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. During the pandemic, I tried, we call it Mindset Live, this school offering a lot of different wellness practices for free over Zoom. That ended up phasing out. And then I went through probably six months of pretty isolated dark times. And as the world started to reopen, I saw friends at the singing circle, just in someone's living room singing. It just looked like a lot of fun. And I asked, what is it? And they said, oh, we meet every other Monday. Here's a WhatsApp group. Here, come join. So I joined it. And the first few times I went, I was pretty intimidated. I didn't lead anything. I just kind of watched, just observed, kind of played along. I was still kind of coming out of this dark, traumatic phase. And then towards October, a few things had happened. I was invited to speak at this conference, and I hadn't spoken in over a year at this point. And they told me at this conference that there was going to be a cover band that was already there. And then I said, okay, like I've led group singing back in 2017. I've led it all my life, but I did a really big one back in 2017. And so I said, well, hey, this could be cool. Let me talk to the band. So I talked to the band and we worked out that I was going to lead a few songs live with the audience. And that got me more confident in leading. And then I started thinking about my time at the singing circle. We call it the Unjammed Circle. And I thought, well, for me to bring this to a lot of people, I would need to do some edits. Because one of the big challenges with the singing circle is people would suggest a song and most of us wouldn't know the song. And we'd have to fumble with our phones, try to pull up the lyrics. And then sometimes we still wouldn't know the song. It would just be hard. And I thought, well, what if we could just take parts of the song that we all knew and only did the songs that we all knew or could teach easily. So it's kind of like I took this raw thing and I just edited it, took kind of my Facebook growth hacker hat and I made it more adapted, you know, for public consumption or for the beginning singer. Hey there, it's Light Watkins. Welcome back to the Light Watkins Show. If you are new to this podcast, I interview individuals who've gone above and beyond to be the change that they wish to see in the world. They share their story behind the story of how they started their movement or their passion project. And what becomes clear more often than not is how they have always been on their path. And I feel that it's important to hear these kinds of stories as often as possible because it reminds us that we're all on our path as well, whether we realize it or not. And just knowing that, I think, makes life a little bit easier to navigate. It allows us to live with a little more intention and purpose, and it reminds us of what's most important whenever we find ourselves at a crossroads, where one choice may be to sell our soul for a buck, and the other is to do what's in our heart and take a leap of faith. And after hearing this show, my hope is that you will be inspired to follow your heart and take a leap of faith in the direction of your purpose and path. 
This week on the show, I'm bringing back to the podcast Mr. Chris Pan, who you may remember from a previous episode, episode 13, I believe, where he told the story of how he started My Intent, which is the company that started making those viral bracelets that you get your word of intent stamped onto. And Chris started that around the same time that I started my nonprofit movement, which was an inspirational variety show called The Shine. And what's interesting is, and we've talked about this, once you successfully start a movement, you begin thinking in terms of movements. You start to see potential movements everywhere. And over the years, Chris has been a part of other movements. So have I. And most recently, Chris started a movement called VOMO, which stands for Voice and Movement. The idea is he brings people together in large and small spaces to sing, to move, and to meditate. And they leave the space feeling free, energized, and inspired to be their best selves and to be the change that they wish to see in the world. And since we've already covered Chris's backstory in the previous episode, I wanted to make this episode more like a masterclass of how to think about starting movements in case you're thinking about starting something. And since Chris and I have both had experience with building movements, we had a lot to talk about when it comes to what is the first step in starting a movement, right? Which may be prototyping your movement in your living room. And how do you think about choosing a name for your movement and promoting your movement and creating content? And if it's an event, what's the best way to facilitate it? <laughs> you know, what's the best length of time? So we go into the the nuts and the bolts of it all. Again, in case you have an idea for something that you've always wanted to do, we can kind of help you get the ball rolling. So I think you'll find this episode very inspiring. And even if you don't have any idea of starting a movement, you'll still find it helpful because you probably know other people who started movements and then it'll show you how to support them and or how to support any movement that you may be passionate about. So let's get to the conversation. Without further ado, here is Mr. Chris Pan back on the podcast. Chris Pan, welcome back to the podcast, man. So good to see you. So good to have you on here. And so excited to share the background of this new project that you're working on. Thank you. Yes, thank you. For people who aren't familiar with your story, can you give us sort of the thumbnail version of how you grew up in Ohio or how you even got to Ohio in the first place? Because you're not actually from there. I was born in Taipei, Taiwan. My grandparents were refugees. My parents were refugees from China. I was there until I was seven. My parents came to the U.S. when I was four. And so I was raised by my grandparents from four to seven. And then I joined them when I was seven to Cincinnati, Ohio. I didn't speak any English. That was quite a challenge growing up and didn't really fit in either. And then eventually made my way to college and ventures around the world. I remember growing up back in elementary school, going to the first day of school and being all nervous and wanting to cry and stuff because my parents would leave me. You were going to a whole new culture. What did that feel like? Do you remember when you were like seven years old coming to America, what that felt like, not speaking the language? I don't remember, but I think it was hard. I probably blocked it out because it was pretty, yeah, pretty dramatic. Talk about your participation in the church and the choir. 
I found a refuge in this Cincinnati Chinese church mm-hmm. and was very involved during high school. I was leading the singing, as we call it, the worship services, and really found, like, I really enjoyed that part and considered being much more involved, you know, maybe even becoming a pastor at one point, because I was doing that for every Friday evening and then every Sunday morning, I was leading people to sing. When did you start playing the guitar? Ninth grade, 10th grade, around that time. What was the inspiration for that? To fit in. I, I think I enjoyed it, but also because it was cool. It was like the cool thing to do. Rock and roll was was big back in the day. Because like my parents didn't play any music growing up, so I didn't I didn't know who Jimi Hendrix or anybody was. Did you were you listening to things back then that inspired yeah, you to say? I remember watching a Bon Jovi video, a music uh-huh. video when I was in eighth grade and thought that'd be really cool to be like that someday. Wow. Stages and singing. I remember doing uh, "You Give Love a Bad Name," doing an impression of that in my living room, thinking that was really cool. I was, I was watching it on MTV. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose, or be more grateful, or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the HappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. So when you hear stories of immigrants, you hear about how the parents were like so insistent that the kid could do well in school and that we've got a great opportunity here. What were your parents talking to you and your brother about growing up in terms of success and what that looked like? Getting good grades, getting a good job. They wanted me to be a doctor because even in a recession or no matter what, people are always going to be sick and you're always going to be needed. So that was <laughs> the path to a security well, you tried medical school out for about five minutes. Three weeks, <laughs> which is about five minutes in the grand scheme of uh, med school, for sure. It's a long journey. It's a very long path. Was that your first time carving your own path when you decided to leave medical school after three weeks? Yes. I think that was the first big decision that I ever made for myself. How did that go over with your parents? They took it surprisingly well. What happened was the med school, they give you a year to think about it. 
So you can also go back. So it wasn't a complete cut, which I think helped a bit. It softened the blow a little bit. My mom was more supportive. My dad definitely was. I think they were disappointed. But, but then you quickly got into business school. Yeah, I took some business classes right away and then started getting uh, job offers. And the economy, I was really lucky. The economy was super hot in fall of 99. It all crashed a year later, but I, <laughs> right at the peak of the boom of that time. And what was your personal idea of success like at that time? How did you see your life sort of playing out? Having gone to medical school for three weeks, now in business school. I don't totally remember, but I think making money was definitely part of it. The prestige of certain jobs or certain roles was exciting and just making money. That was during the first dot-com boom when all these 22-year-olds were making hundreds of millions of dollars on paper. And so I wanted to be like one of them. I know you eventually had a ban when you worked for Facebook, but were there any breadcrumbs of anything that you're doing today back when you were in those earlier years in business school? Were you like playing music? Were you meditating, doing anything? I was part of the HBS show, which is a musical show that the students write and put together. So that took up a big chunk of my spring of, I think it was my second year. Yeah, that was a big commitment. Yeah, so I was playing guitar even during business school. And then I didn't play as much once I got out into the workforce. Give us a little snapshot of your working world. What was that? What was happening there? I know you did Pepsi in China. I was a consultant at McKinsey and Company. It's probably the most prestigious management consulting firm. And then got recruited to go to PepsiCo to be a marketing director. And yeah, I played the guitar here and there. I think I played it for a couple of company events just for fun. And then I ended up at Facebook. And at Facebook, I after a year, I started a band with a few colleagues. And over the course of three years, I think I did like 30 some gigs and had a blast. It was originally an originals band, and then I started a cover band, left the originals band, and really had fun with the cover band. When you were working in these companies, did you feel like, I found my passion, I found my calling, like, this is it, this is my path? At Facebook, I really enjoyed it. It was exciting. We were winning. We were growing all the time, and it was great people that I got to work with and just loved my time there. And then I also really loved music. And after I left Facebook, I considered going to the Guitar Institute of Technology and studying to be a guitarist. So I definitely consider that. I didn't end up doing it, but that was on the mind. Talk about the difference in mindset working at Facebook versus working for McKinsey and working at Pepsi. I think working at a big company, an established company, the appetite for innovation and growth is, you know, it's incremental. There's a lot of like, we've always been doing it this way, so we'll keep doing it and we'll change a little bit. And at Facebook, I was there when there were about 50 million users. And by the time I left, it was about 500 million users. And so that's about a 10x growth. Most big companies don't experience that type of growth. And at Facebook, that was just a very unique time. It was kind of like being there in the teenage years, you know, when you're really spurting. And I remember being there at 50 million users MySpace was at 120 million users. And I thought, man, if we get to 100 million users or 120, that would be a big deal. And a lot of the leadership were already planning for a billion users. So they were looking at Google, which at the time probably had a billion or a couple billion users. And they thought the competition was Google and not MySpace. And I thought that was very eye-opening for me to think that big. 
you know, they had their sites set on something quite grand. Do you think that's unique to Facebook or these tech companies? Do you think that people in general should be thinking bigger than they actually think, having gone through that experience? I think there's probably a role for both. And maybe not everyone's meant to be serving at such a large scale because it comes with its own set of challenges and it's just, it's intense. And, you know, as I look back, there's nothing wrong with having also a small website that helps smaller communities, but it was definitely exciting to be in that one. I think of my time at Facebook as being with the Chicago Bulls when Jordan was there, that type of feeling, but also there's nothing wrong with being part of a community league and just playing, you know, hoops. And it all depends on what you want to get out of it. So that sort of dark night of the soul moment that you talked about in our earlier interview, was that, that was just before Facebook, right? There was one right before Facebook. There was one right after Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. There's a, you know, there's one of those. Yeah. Yeah. So the one after Facebook was what led to the Hoffman process. The one before Facebook was kind of what led to Facebook. Exactly. And you were in a very fortunate position getting in so early in the early days of Facebook that you got stock options and stuff. So it kind of made things a little more comfortable. But let me ask you this. People imagine that once they reach a certain financial point, once they hit their number, they're going to be happier, right? What was your experience? Yes, it definitely helps. But at the time, I was in a relationship throughout my working at Facebook, and then that ended. And all I wanted was to get that relationship back. So I think Money is certainly one thing that we can all long for, but there are other things that we all long for. And, you know, maybe it's health, maybe it's relationship. Money is just one thing. And it certainly helps to have it, but I don't think it's the end all be all. So you didn't tangibly feel happier once you kind of hit your financial goals at that time in your life. It was a short burst. I think what it meant though, was by having money, like I would have community, I would have friends. I would be having more fun and, and to some extent, yeah, but I think life is also about having the right people and the right sense of purpose and the right, like being able to do things that I really enjoy. I think that's just as important. And, and the money certainly can enable freedom so that I can take my time and do more things that I enjoy. But I think money is just a means to an end, not the end all and be all. You know, I could have a billion dollars right now, but I could be trapped in somewhere I don't want to be with people I don't want to be with doing, you know, can't like if I couldn't play music, I'd be very sad, even if I had a billion dollars. So talk about Hoffman process and the importance. Describe what that's like for someone who's never been and how did that kind of shape your perspective on your path? I think the most important thing I got out of it was a week. It's a week of deep inner work. It's about 16 hours of deep inner work every day. It's very, it's like a boot camp for your soul. It was all about looking inward and finding my own answers. And I thought that was really different than anything I'd experienced. I think most of our society is trying to influence us in one way or the other trying to get us to buy something, to feel a certain way, to, to be a certain way, to you know live a certain way. And this was a week of time where they just held space for me to go in and find my own answers. And that was revolutionary. That was just mind-blowing for me because I'd never experienced anything like that. I grew up in a household where my parents, especially my dad, was constantly telling me what to do, what to think, what to believe. And I didn't have the space to tune into my own intuition. What was a day in the life like at Hoffman? You didn't have your phone. You didn't have any gadgets. Uh, Wake up, 
there'd be like a check-in with, we had 40 students, there were five teachers, we had small groups. So each teacher had eight participants. And so, you know, at breakfast, we'd check in and there'd be like a prompt or question uh, we'd you know, answer right in the morning and the teacher would check in with us, or maybe that would be like an assignment from the night before. And my teacher would, you know, we'd check in, have breakfast, and then we'd probably get into a room and we did a lot of visualizations, which I'd never done before. Mm-hmm. So we would close our eyes and we would be guided to experience things in our mind. I think of it as it's like, the, like a movie but I got to be the lead actor in the movie. It was like my life. And it was getting to write the story of my life. That was really cool. There'd be moments where we'd break off into small groups and then have some small group sharing. There were some exercises where we'd, they'd set up almost like a theatrical experience and they would give us prompts and we would go through. I, I, th- I thought of it as kind of like, I get to write the story of my life over the course of a week. And I get to author how I wanted things to go. And that felt very empowering and just very freeing. What did you do differently after that experience? I saw life differently. I wanted to be a lot more intentional and mindful about how I was living. They have this framework talking about how, you know, we have four aspects to ourselves. We have a physical and intellectual and an emotional and spiritual. And I never really paid attention to the emotional and spiritual aspects of myself. So And I got plugged into a network of other people who were doing emotional and spiritual work. So we would trade books, trade notes, check in. You know, I started doing improv class. That was one of the suggestions that came out of my time at Hoffman. And the improv class was life-changing. And I started singing more, just tapping more into the artistic and emotional side of me. Talk a little bit about the earlier days of Spirit Lab. It started in San Francisco around your birthday, right? (laughs) So, so for my birthday, I wanted to do something non-traditional. I didn't want to just rent out a bar and have everyone drunk. And I rented an art gallery. It was a rectangular shape, almost like a small gymnasium, and invited friends to come. When they arrived, I had uh, different activities for them. It was almost like a adult summer camp. On one of the walls, there was a dream board where the question was, you know, what's something you dream about doing one day and what's one step you could take to go there and the little post-it notes. And so people started writing like dreams that they have and and then starting to think about what's one thing they could do to go after that dream. There was a station set up for people to just paint. And I bought little three by five canvases, so very small, and they could paint something in call it 10, 15 minutes. And I still actually have a lot of those blank canvases that are now painted at the house. And there was like a smoothie bar, you know, so no alcohol. It was just healthy refreshments. Then for the actual program, I started off with some meditation and then getting people tuned into their bodies, then a little bit of Tai Chi to start waking up the body. We were basically just hitting our body to start, you know, moving around, move the energy around. And then we sang and I had a voice teacher come and lead us in a couple of songs. And what was different was originally the voice teacher wanted to do some scales. And I thought that was kind of boring. And all of a sudden on the radio, on my iPod, the song Lean On Me came on and I hadn't heard that in years. And I was like, oh, that'd be the perfect song to use to get people to start singing because everyone knows it. And then I projected the lyrics on a projector so that people could follow along easily. 
And that was beautiful. I still have that recording. I should actually, I'll probably post it soon now that I think of it. And then the next song we did was Radioactive by Imagine Dragons, which I love the message about, you know, when you tap into your purpose and your passion, then you feel radioactive and you have that sense of energy. And then I had everyone dancing and I told everyone we were making a music video to kind of make it more interesting. And then we did an improv exercise after that. And then we ended the official program and people just hung out. We did some karaoke and had some smoothies and it was just a lovely time. So that was the beginning. Oh, and then I had a friend come and make some intention bracelets there. And that was lovely. I had other friends come and share different things because I made it kind of a community event. I was partly responsible for the programming, but also other friends brought their gifts as well. So then when I moved to LA, I started having these gatherings at my house. I called it Spirit Sundays, where we'd get together and we would do similar activities. And so I did that for about a year. This is the house in the hills. Yeah. And luckily I had a nice view, which definitely helped. And the intention bracelets came out of that because that was the hit out of all the activities that we did. So the person who did the intention bracelets in San Francisco, was that the same person who reintroduced it to you in LA? Or is that something you just... No, I did need the tools as a gift to bring down to LA. So I brought the tools down and I didn't think much of it at the time. If you asked me the moment that I got the tools, like that I would end up starting a company around it or... to me i just thought it was cool and it would be one of probably many things that i would do but i just kept doing it and it just kind of took on a life of its own yeah it'd be like telling you you you're going to start up a painting company with those little index cards that people were painting on at spirit lab it's just it was like one of maybe 10 things yeah happening activities but that one no one was really doing people do other things like painting i mean there's you know people do like paint nights People do some, you know, singing nights or other things uh, to some extent, but yeah, that was really unique. Well, it's almost a perfect way to connect really quickly and go deep yeah. really quickly, you know, asking someone what's your word that leads to a story, right? And then you can like, it's kind of like magic too, because you're stamping this word into this washer and then you're tying it on their arm. And then I have something to remember the moment for a long time and and then it was very easy to capture content of because then you can have a celebrity or whoever was around show mm-hmm. their bracelet and then you could post it. And that's what I saw in those earlier days was you had like, I think, Adrian, the guy from Entourage. And, yeah, he was the first celebrity that we had wearing one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then culminating with <laughs> Kanye West wearing a bracelet on the cover of Time magazine. How, what was the timeline between Adrian getting his... And Kanye West uh, on the cover of Time magazine. Adrian was November, December of 2013. Okay. And Kanye was April of 2015. So a year and a half. That's crazy. That's insane. Yeah, it happens. So my intent ended up being the company that you started. How many maker kits and how many bracelets would you say exist in the world today after starting that in 2013? Probably a hundred thousand maker kits, maybe four to five million bracelets in the world, some somewhere in that range. Go <laughs> pull the numbers, but it's somewhere in that range. All born out of Spirit Lab. Yeah, all born out of an intention to just bring wellness to a lot of people. So when the pandemic hit, you began hosting these virtual gatherings 
that I feel like were sort of the precursor to what you're doing now. Would you consider that to be the case or would you say that it came a little bit later? Because I remember being at your house and you had me listening to We Are the World like a thousand times and all these songs (laughs) (laughs) that had these melodies that you could just sing, you know, again and again and again. Yeah. So my intent live was kind of like a a hodgepodge. Like it was, remember we did a lot of different things. We had like breath work, we yoga, we did conversation lab, we had singing, we had dancing, we had just a lot of different things. Singing was one of them. So that in a way, yeah, that was kind of like spirit lab had a lot of different activities. And Mm -hmm. so out of that set of activities, singing is the one that really, the one that I love the most out of all those activities and that's the one that now I'm using to take forward because it's hard to take forward 10 different things. And also there's a lot of other people focused on just breath work or just dance or just yoga, but no one's really working on singing. So that's what I'm choosing to do. So I would love to shift a little bit and just start a little semi masterclass in how to start a movement. Because you started a movement already. I've started a movement. So I just want to talk about how you think about this inception phase of starting your newest movement, BOMO. And in case someone out there wants to start something as well and or get involved in what you're doing, I want to just kind of take it from the very first step into where we are today with the whole thing. So when you had the idea, when you said, okay, this is going to be an event where I'm going to have people singing and we're going to connect over music, right? When did that happen? And what occurred just before that, that made you say, now is the time? It's a bit serendipitous. During the pandemic, I tried this, this we call it Mind Tent Live, this school mm-hmm. offering a lot of different wellness practices for free over Zoom that ended up phasing out. And then I went through probably six months of pretty isolated, dark times. And as the world started to reopen, I saw friends at the singing circle, just in someone's living room singing. It just looked like a lot of fun. And I asked, uh, what is it? And they said, oh, we meet every other Monday. Here's a WhatsApp group. Here, come join. So I joined it. And the first few times I went, I was pretty intimidated. I didn't lead anything. I just kind of watched, just observed, kind of played along. I was still kind of coming out of this dark, traumatic phase. And then towards October, a few things had happened. I was invited to speak at this conference, and I hadn't spoken in over a year at this point. And they told me at this conference that there was going to be a cover band that was already there. And then I said, oh, okay. Like I've led group singing Back in 2017, I've led it all my life, but I did a really big one back in 2017. And so I said, well, hey, this could be cool. Let me talk to the band. So I talked to the band and we worked out that I was going to lead a few songs live with the audience. And that got me more confident in leading. And then I started thinking about my time at the singing circle. We call it the Unjam Circle. And I thought, well, for me to bring this to a lot of people, I would need to do some edits. Because one of the big challenges with the singing circle is people would suggest a song and most of us wouldn't know the song and we'd have to fumble with our phones, try to pull up the lyrics. And then sometimes we still wouldn't know the song. It would just be hard. And I thought, well, what if we could just take parts of the song that we all knew and only did the songs that we all knew or could teach easily. So it's kind of like I took this raw thing and I just edited it to kind of my 
Facebook growth hacker hat and I made it more adapted, you know, for public consumption or for the beginning singer. And at Facebook, one of the things I learned with the growth team is, you know, look at the barriers to someone doing something and start systematically removing the barriers. And one of the biggest barriers to people singing is they don't know the lyrics. So we can fix that. And that's what I started doing. That's kind of the difference between the Unjam Circle versus like Vomo is I curate the lyrics very carefully so that people have an incredibly fun and I call it a flowy experience where they don't have to be in their heads and try to remember a lot of stuff. It's a sing-along, not, hey, you got to memorize a whole bunch of lyrics and perform it at the end. Because I've been to other singing experiences like that, where over the course of an hour or two, you learn a single song, but you have to memorize all this, you know, lyrics that after that night, you're never going to probably need again. And I just think it's mentally very taxing and it's not a very fun experience. So I decided to create what I believe is the ultimate fun and uplifting, cathartic sing-along experience. What's an example of a song that you remixed to make it easier? The first one that comes to mind is, uh, you know, we'll take the song What's Up by Four Non Blondes. And we'll just okay. pull, of all the verses, we pulled one verse and then we just, and the chorus is super easy. So the parts that we do is, and I wake up in the morning and I step outside, I take a deep breath and I get real high, I scream at the top of my lungs, what's going on? And then we pair it with movement. You know, I wake up in the morning and I, you know, you literally take a step, right? Take a step outside and you take a deep breath and you get real high and I scream at the top of my lungs, what's going on? And that helps it be easier to remember. And then we'll repeat that over and over and then we'll move on to the next part. I think it's probably like Kirtan style. We're, we're just taking a different approach at these songs. So you have the idea, you have the concept, you've seen the concept in action, but you wanted to tweak it, right? How are you thinking about the best way to get people in the room? Because singing out loud is, you know, I used to have a board game company and uh, it was just, one of our first games was a spelling game, which was fun for us to try to spell words that we couldn't spell. But we later learned that people are absolutely petrified of spelling out loud in public. And I imagine singing is on that list somewhere in the top five things that people don't want to do out loud. So what was your hack to enticing people to come out? And who were the people you thought, if I get these people in the room, then everybody else is going to come? I think you're absolutely right. People don't want to look like a fool. People don't want to look silly unless they're at a wedding and they've had a lot of tequila shots. <laughs> right. Anything works, right? One of our slogans is sing bad, feel great. We're really focusing on the wellness aspect of singing rather than the performance aspect. And when you get a group of people together in a room, then all the voices blend and we're not asking anyone to do a solo. So in a way you just go at it and it's all good. And then, yeah, we've, we've invited folks out and definitely we've heard the response that I'm not a singer, you know, and then I ask them, do you enjoy singing? And, and usually the answer is yes. And then they're like, well, I only do it in the shower. I only do it in the car. And I think it's around this notion that we've somehow delegated singing to Adele and Axl Rose, you know, unless you sound like that, then you shouldn't be singing, but that's not really the, the case. Right? Maybe you shouldn't be performing, and maybe that's right, you spare everyone else, but you can certainly sing in a sing-along because you're blending in with everyone else. 
and you're not being judged or evaluated based on how well you're seeing anyway. You're just doing it for fun. It's like none of us would be thinking, oh, we shouldn't go shoot a few hoops just because we can't sink threes like Stephen Curry or dunk like Michael Jordan, right? But we still go shoot and we don't think twice about it. And that's the same with singing is just because you can't sing like Adele, like it doesn't matter. You can still enjoy the activity. And now that everyone has a phone in their pocket and we live in a content-based society, how are you thinking about capturing that content in your initial events? Because you look, let's just be honest, right? Sex sales, people see hot girls in a place, then guys are going to want to be there as well. So how conscious were you of curating those images, those initial images when you were first advertising or marketing the event? Yeah, I mean, we captured content as it happened, and there are a lot of people having a really good time. And we're in LA, a lot of people are actors and models and people in entertainment. So certainly there are some good looking people in the footage and people were just being authentically having fun. And I watch the videos and I just smile and I'm like, oh, I want to be a part of that. Like, that looks like a good time. So you didn't even have a name when you first started doing this. You didn't, you hadn't settled on a name. You just started it. The first time I did it, I called it Voga for voice yoga, but it wasn't set in stone yet. And I called it voice yoga because I wanted to make it a practice, something intentional where these were intentionally designed vocal exercises. Most of them were top 40 songs, but there were a few other things that were just like vocal toning where we just made a sound. So I called it Voga for about two months. And then people got confused because they thought they were going to get into down dog and sing, which is not the case for most of what we do. So then I went back to the drawing board over the holidays and my brother and I were brainstorming different names. And then we thought, well, what is it? It's literally using your voice and then also your body. So there's also some movement. And so we came up with the name voice movement, VOMO. And it's very appropriate because there's, you know, activating your voice, activating your body. And then also we're trying to get people like it's a movement around using your voice. And we specifically didn't want to call it anything related to singing. And we didn't want to call it anything related to dance because that implies there's a right and wrong way to do it. And voice is just activating your voice. Were there any other considerations in terms of, oh, this is available as a domain or this is available on social media or it's too long or it's too short or it needs to be easy to say or spread the word or spell? Any of those considerations as well? Vomo, people originally thought it sounded too like FOMO, mm-hmm. but then it was cute because you could be like, well, you know, no FOMO, come VOMO. And definitely there was some pushback around it sounded too much like FOMO, but then we just went ahead with it anyway. I think as a leader, sometimes you have to just do things that even though people may not think it's okay or whatnot, but sometimes you just have to push through. And so that was a moment when I had to just be like, because I think I did a poll and I think people didn't like VOMO because it sounded too much like FOMO, but even if it didn't win the popular vote, I still went ahead and did it anyway. And then it was vomo.me, which is voice movement and meditation. It was based on this quote that says in tribal cultures, if somebody wasn't feeling well, if somebody was depressed, the shaman would ask four questions. When was the last time you sang? When was the last time you danced? When was the last time you meditated or sat in silence? And then when was the last time you were enchanted by a story? And so that was a goal to incorporate all four of those aspects into these sessions so there would be some movement, there would be some singing, there would be some meditating, and there'd be some story time. And so not always, but at many of the sessions, we try to incorporate a little bit of each. Although mostly it's around singing and then some movement and then a little meditation and maybe a story or two. 
I remember when you first started talking about this, you were already envisioning stadiums <laughs> and big stages. And I'm just wondering how important do you think that is to envision and imagine how big this could go? Is that a carryover from your Facebook years? Yeah, I think it's just maybe as a kid, I was running around my living room pretending to be John Bon Jovi. So, you know, it's maybe maybe it's more that. But I like to work on stuff that can help a lot of people, mm-hmm. which is part of my nature. And so I started thinking about, okay, how do I build a concept that can reach a lot of people? So, for example, this can't be that difficult. Like we have to make everything super easy because the more technical we made it, the fewer people would be able to enjoy it, for example. And so that served as just a guiding, like, I'd always be like, okay, is this something we could do in a state? And if the answer came back, no, then I'd be like, okay, maybe let's not do this exercise. What were some of the things you had to prune after your first few events or add? I actually haven't really had to prune stuff because I've been pretty intentional about it. I've definitely had other people come and try stuff at these events that I realized I'm like, it, it works for a 10, 20 person circle but it's not going to work for a thousand people or 10,000 people. You know, they, they go around and have each person like sing their name or have each person add a melody or something, but that works when you're in a small group and it's, those are great activities. Right. But they're going to be so um, helpful when you're in a big arena. I remember back when we first did the shine and I would have other people host the shine mm-hmm. because I just wanted to be behind the scenes but I felt like it was losing the soul of the original you know, intention behind it. So I decided to jump in and start hosting the Shine. And then we also you know, had that Shine on Challenge initiative where we gave away money to someone in the audience. And I felt like that was probably one of the key elements that ended up scaling the Shine from an event that was 550 people to one that was like 400 people. Have you had any insights in regards to that kind of thing? Like, I think, you know, we talked about the importance of reiterating the mission every time. I didn't, I wasn't doing that all the time at the shine. And then I realized I had to do that because we had new people coming all the time and it's good to kind of enroll them in the mission and even just remind myself of the mission while I was hosting the event. What has been your experience with those kinds of elements? So we've been positioning this as a wellness event. Mm-hmm. Uh, bring them in dance studios and yoga studios and we haven't actually tried it at a bar or at a club where bands usually play but i'm about to so <laughs> months and let you know if that works i feel like that pivot could unlock a lot of growth for us but we'll see but i think there's certain people that would go as a wellness event like a, a alternative to yoga for example but part of my gut is telling me now that maybe more people would go if this was like a concert and something that you would go on a Friday night at nine to 11, you know, mm-hmm. and, and to see some other, you know, your favorite band, like you come and you're the band. And so that's just something that I'm about to go try out. How are you thinking about charging and prices? I know you've tried a few different things. Yeah, we Originally, put a bit of a higher price because I wanted people to value the activity. And then we had some discount codes that were available. And, you know, we had a 10-piece band at one point. So that was definitely expensive. And we were renting out some really nice, huge venues. And then I realized, you know, that was yet another barrier. I mean, some people were fine paying a higher price, but I just wanted to get people to try this. So we made it a contribute what you can 
kind of a donation-based pay what you want model. And then I think, you know, half the people came for free. And then some people chose to donate like 10, 20 bucks and it was fine. It's just right now we're still in such early stage of just getting this out into the world and we're learning along the way as well. Well, that's interesting to contribute what you can. So the average was around 12 bucks or something like that. Yeah, I think between 10 and 20, we made it like 10, like 11, 22, 33, 44, all the way up to like 111. And so there are a few people that paid like pretty up there as well, but not many. And then most people were in the 11 and 22. It's interesting psychologically, you know, when you give people choice, but people could have gone for zero. So they didn't all go for zero, which is nice too. They did choose to pay something, but it was on the you know the lower side. But I don't blame them because it's a new it's a new concept, so they don't know what they're getting. And we weren't very aggressive about after the fact saying, "Hey, maybe if you liked it, you know, if you want to donate, we just wanted people to have a good experience and hopefully come back." So, are you sort of like the director of operations? Is it like a one man decision making machine, or do you have a team or a board, or how have you structured yourself? for these earlier days of the event. I'm sure it's going to grow at some point as the event grows, but what do you think is the best way to structure it? Right now it's just me and I have a few people that I get advice from and I have a few people who are part-time helping out with stuff from my intent. And yeah, as we grow and scale, then I'd love to, I mean, I'm considering maybe raising some money and bring on some full-time staff or professional staff. So it's all in the works, but we're only, you know, half a year into this thing. So Still learning, still figuring it out. Where do you see it going in the next, say, year from now? Considering the fact that you were on the cover of Time Magazine after a year and a half of starting starting my intent, what do you think could happen in this next year? So I'd like to see us have weekly residencies at different places. So maybe a Tuesday night here or there, a Friday night somewhere else, and then maybe a Sunday morning somewhere and have different locations where we're doing this regularly and they're packing out, forcing us to get bigger and bigger venues. So that would be nice to see. And then eventually maybe a stadium somewhere and then, you know, potentially taking this on the road, but I definitely want to build this in LA and build it well here first. And then as that happens, I'd like to offer a facilitator training program where we're teaching other people how to facilitate this and making it available to communities around the world And then we're also planning on recording these tracks so people can sing along at home, even if you're not able to join us at a physical location event. Yeah, the facilitator training is kind of in the works now, isn't it? Yeah, I've been figuring out how to run it and when to run it. I think I might do more of a soft launch initially, which is just a handful of people that I think are quite talented and just start doing it together. And as we do, we'll start to figure out how to then teach it to other people. I've been putting a lot of thought into how to teach people how to facilitate others in singing. And I've been studying all sorts of different programs to get inspiration to figure out how to design ours. Talk about frequency. What have you discovered in terms of these events and how often you should have them? Well, partly it starts with myself. It's how often I want to be able to lead them. Mm -hmm. I try to do a couple a week where I'm thinking of it as it's an opportunity for me to practice and to get my own craft. So that's one consideration. And then partly it's, you know, how big is my infrastructure? And right now we're about to launch the official website. We're about to get the promo reel done. So we're getting all that set up. And until we have that, it's quite a bit of work to promote the event every time, but we're about to establish some residencies where 
it'll be every Tuesday, every Friday, every Sunday. And that way it'll be much easier. You know, people just know that they can count on this to happen. But, but I think it just depends on the person's bandwidth. Are you generating leads in some specific way for Vomo right now? Or are you just kind of co-opting the My Intent email list and letting people know that way? Not using the My Intent email list because that's a list that is people from all over the world. Right now we're only in LA. So it's mostly just friends and a part of a few different West Side LA communities that are into singing and arts and so forth. How do you encourage word of mouth? Is there something, do you tell people at the end of the events, hey, tell your friends, or is there some takeaway that they can use to entice other people to join them in the next group or discount codes or anything like that? Not yet. I'm mostly focused on just having a great experience for people. We will eventually, and we'll try all sorts of stuff, but we're just not there yet. I haven't really focused that much on that aspect of things. What would success look like to you with FOMO at this stage? Getting weekly residencies that are packed and getting a group of people who are also committed to doing this. So I think I'm close to finding a few other people who would be other facilitators and kind of the core team. And I'm talking to a manager of bands, for example, he might come and manage us. Part of right now is just building the team and the experiences. Awesome, man. Well. I think this is an exciting time to be both a part of this. And I haven't been to one personally, as you know, but I'm excited to try out one and just to witness you building this thing, having already built this really successful. And when I say successful, I'm not talking about monetarily successful, but just in terms of impact, right? What you did with my intent and the impact that you've been able to have with building that company and getting people to articulate what their word of intention was and all of that and to have that circulate around the world and run into random people on airplanes and in all kinds of places with the my intent bracelet on it's been pretty amazing to watch especially seeing it again on the cover of time magazine and we go into the story and we didn't get into that story but it's an incredible story of how all that happened specifically with kanye west who was connected with Jay-Z, who you encountered at this place in Los Angeles. And there was this really cool story behind that. So I highly recommend going back and listening to that earlier episode to go do a deeper dive into your backstory and how my intent happened, because there was a point in time where you were actually going to throw in the towel on my intent (laughs) right before it really blew up. And then some very serendipitous things happened and it ended up pivoting into a completely different stratosphere. So hopefully you don't have to have so many ups and downs with Bomo. But I think, tell, tell me as a final sort of question, what did you learn from the My Intent experience that you're now applying to building Bomo? Probably just keep doing it and just keep <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Just don't like, give up. It's like unpredictable. You know, you don't know who you're going to meet tomorrow. You don't know who's going to show up and change the course of things. You just got to keep going. Yeah, I mean, definitely I'd be careful about who to bring on, scaling too fast. You know, there's all the tactical business stuff, but I think just go with it and go with your gut, go with what feels good. You know, I I was doing my intent because it brought me a lot of joy. Mm -hmm. It brought me a lot of connection to other people and it made me feel good every time I made a bracelet for somebody. And every time I do one of these sessions, a VOMO session, it's just fun. And so I'm I'm excited to keep doing them. 
So I think just keep going. There's also this idea about how involved you want to be, right? Like, for instance, there was an article I read with Jerry Seinfeld who said that the reason why the Seinfeld show was so successful, I think it was the most successful sitcom ever or something like that. But he said it was because I did the opposite of what most successful entrepreneurs do, which is to outsource, to scale. He said, I was micromanaging everything. I was involved with every edit, every casting, every shot, every everything he had his hands on. What's your thinking on that in terms of, because you're talking about scaling it already, facilitator programs, but also how inspired you are from being involved in the events. Are you intentionally staying very, very hands-on with all these little details? Or are you kind of wanting to get people to help you with things more? <laughs> I definitely don't want to be in most of the details. I just want to focus on the music and curating new things for people to sing. I, I enjoy that part, but you know, I guess I have to do whatever it takes until I find the right people. But I'm definitely hoping to build the right team that can help scale it. But I definitely have a vision for it and will be as involved as I need to be, I guess, until it happens. But yeah, it's 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 a lot of work to be that involved. Yeah. yeah. Say somebody's listening to this and yeah. they're thinking about doing something community related. Do you have any words of wisdom for that person who's listening? Just follow your bliss. You know, do it. Because the other thing I would say is, you know, and Seinfeld, that quote reminds me a lot of Zuck, you know, he's very involved, at least in the early days of every aspect of Facebook. And, and I guess if you want to be that involved, it's a big commitment. And sure, you get a lot of success and huge impact. But also, I think in the end, it's like, do I really care? Like, I guess there's a part of me that would love to be in the stadium. But there's a part of me that's like, if I just have a, a group of friends that get together every week, and we sing, and maybe that's fun, too. And what's the trade off of how much energy I need to expend Versus in the end, I just want to sing and have fun. You know, so it kind of depends on what the drive is and what the ultimate intention is. You know, for someone who's thinking about starting a movement, I would say, why do you want to start this movement? Is it that unique? What's unique about what you're offering? Proof of concept. Is it really that interesting? And just keep keep doing what you enjoy. Thank you, man, for coming back on to the show and sharing your experience with this new movement. We wish you Lots of success. I can't wait to personally attend one. Hopefully that'll happen sooner rather than later. And we'll definitely be connecting offline as well. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Chris Pan. Make sure to follow Chris on social media. He is at Chris Pan, C-H-R-I-S-P-A-N. And then Vomo's social media handle is at Vomo.me. That's V-O-M-O dot me. We'll, of course, put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, if you enjoyed Chris's story, you can find similar stories at lightwatkins.com. If you go to the podcast page on the website, you'll see a drop down menu where you can search my past episodes by subject matter. So if you want to hear more episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or people who've overcome financial struggles or people who've navigated health challenges, you can get a list of all of those episodes at lightwatkins.com. Oh, and by the way, did you know that you can watch these podcast episodes on YouTube? Because I know for me, sometimes it's nice to put a face 
or voice to a story. So just keep that in mind in case you're the same. I do post every podcast episode on my YouTube channel, which you can find by searching Light Watkins Podcast on YouTube. And I also put the raw, unedited version of every podcast episode in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you're the type that likes to hear all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and the end of every episode, then you can listen to all of that by joining my online community at thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only are you going to have access to the unedited versions of the podcast, but you'll also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge, my seven-day meditation kickstart. And there are a lot of master classes on there for doing your inner work. There are other challenges for diet and for movement and whatnot. Also, if you're feeling inspired by these stories and you want to make sure that this podcast continues to share the inspiration for a while, the best way to support that mission is to leave a rating or a review for the podcast, which you can do really quickly by just glancing down at your device and on the Apple podcast app, which you may already have pulled up, you just click the name of the show. And then that'll take you to the previous episodes. You scroll down past five or six previous episodes. You'll see five blank stars. Just tap the star all the way on the right and you've left the rating. Thank you very much for that. And otherwise, I look forward to seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you, just a regular person who decided, you know what? I'm going to take a leap of faith in the direction of my purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart and keep taking those leaps of faith in your life. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.